Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Every biographical portrait is a singular take on its subject. An Ockham New Zealand Book Award winner for non-fiction this year, Ralph Hotery, The Dark is Light Enough, is writer Vincent O'Sullivan's unique homage to his friend and fellow cultural traveller, Ralph Hotery. Written at the invitation of the artist and crafted through personal conversations as well as access to Fano and papers, the book outlines the remarkable story of the small boy Hone Papita Rokura Hotori, born in the Hokianga in 1931, who becomes Roe, then Ralph, and eventually the stand-alone signature Hotori. It is a loving but incomplete portrait, as O'Sullivan describes it, ending with the artist in his 70s when personal contact ceased. He shares his experiences of the man with Hannah August in a session supported by Heartland Bank. We hope you enjoy it. Ena reo, ena iwi, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Hannah August toku ingoa, tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome to this event entitled Ralph, a Portrait, in which we are here to celebrate um, the work not just of one of Aotearoa's greatest visual artists, Ralph Hotere, but also the award-winning biographical portrait, we'll come to that term, uh, written by one of our most esteemed men of letters, Vincent O'Sullivan. I'm Hannah August. Uh, I'm a lecturer in the School of Humanities, Media and Creative Communication at Massey, Massey University, and it's my great pleasure to be with you today. Uh, I will introduce Vincent more fully to you in a minute. Uh, I have a few housekeeping points of order. You've probably, if you've been here over the course of the weekend, heard them all before, but uh, do please check that your phones are on silent. Um, if you want to post about the event on social media uh, as it's happening, you're welcome to do so, but please be considerate of other audience members around you. Please ensure you've all scanned in using either the COVID app or have um, manually signed in. We're very lucky to be attending events like this, so let's hold on to that luck. Um, we are also very lucky to have the support of the Heartland Bank for this session uh, and the festival as a whole, so I'd just like to acknowledge them as the festival's platinum partner. Uh, we will take a few questions at the end, and I will let you know how that will work when we come to that point in the event. So, with that all out of the way, it is my great pleasure to introduce the man on stage with me, who will be familiar to many of you. Vincent is a former New Zealand Poet Laureate uh, and one of our most prolific writers. He is proficient in a dazzling array of genres. Uh, he is a poet, short story writer, novelist, playwright, critic, editor, biographer and librettist. Uh, this year he has published a new collection of poetry entitled Things Okay With You, and a new play, Simple Acts of Malice, was performed at the Dunedin Arts Festival in April. And of course last year the book that we are here to talk about today was published, The Dark Is Light Enough, Ralph Hotere, A Biographical Portrait, which on Wednesday won the General Nonfiction Award in the 2021 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. Mm. It's, uh, that's definitely an achievement which, which aptly commemorates this wonderful book. So yeah. congratulations and welcome, Vincent. Thank you. Um, so I would like to begin uh, just by asking you why you have subtitled this book a biographical portrait rather than a biography. 
Well, a biography sounds as if it's got the full support of everyone who should have supported it. And uh, a biographical portrait simply is one person's take on someone else. Um, for example, I'd have never called it anything other than a personal uh, biography. I'm sure a sort of a, <coughs> an informed art historian, um, an informed um, Maori scholar and so on, they'd have all presented different kinds of biography. And this was, I called it that, personalized because uh, Ralph and I knew each other since the 1960s. Um, we were good friends, but not sort of intimate friends. I don't think it would have been possible if that had been the case. Um, and so it's simply one person's take on Hotri and the importance of it being done now, I think, is that already since uh, the time I um, began considering it and working on it, at least 15 artists and important uh, family members and so on have died. So th that's often the trouble with New Zealand biographies, I think. We tend to leave it a bit late to get off the ground. And then, you know, there's nothing like live informants mm -hmm. to tell you the sort of things that you either believe or don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think one, I mean, it's interesting that it is, you've, you've chosen that word portrait. Um, there are portraits, photographic yes. portraits in yes, the book. Yes, yes. But, uh, uh, one of the things that strikes you immediately is that there are no visual reproductions yes. of Ralph's mm -hmm. work. Can you speak to that? Yes, <clears throat> trying to put it as simply as I can. Um, when Ralph and I first, uh, when Ralph uh, sort of invited me um, to do this, not long after his uh, stroke right back in 2001, um, he said, use, say what you like and use what you like. And of course, being old friends and also I think artists of any kind, writers or painters and so on, we're not inclined to think of um, legal problems that may be ahead. That uh, it seems to me <laughs> there's always a lawyer hiding behind a bush somewhere in the future. <laughs> when, at the time. So we, it never occurred to us to put anything on paper. It was simply an agreement between two friends that this would be an interesting uh, book to do together. And the difficulty was that then, because of Ralph's illness and so on, um, later on, power of attorney sort of was removed, uh, was taken. And when I gave Ralph a list of illustrations that I wanted to use, it then became clear, ah, but you're not dealing with Ralph now. You're dealing with a different entity. So immediately that involved all sorts of other considerations without going too much into them. They did become a bit difficult, to say the least, and I was not forbidden to use any of the pictures, but it became so protracted, the attempt to um, get permissions and also to Papa Press, who at that stage were going to be the publishers. And I think exchanges went on for oh, two or three years, and it'd take six months to get an answer for a letter. And um, it simply, 
I, I didn't run out of enthusiasm, but the fact that it just seemed further and further any possibility of doing it, so I called it a day. And then shortly before COVID, Claire Murdoch, who had been at uh, Te Papa Press and was now with Penguin, uh, we were just chatting and thought, well, I wonder if there's any chance of making a book out of this that isn't the, doesn't absolutely me, need uh, the images and the illustrations. And I feel myself that it's not, not the book that either Ralph or myself really had in mind, but it was certainly the closest we could get to it in one lifetime, in my lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> I want to come in a minute to, I want to ask you to read a passage that, that shows us how you have um, verbally substituted for the lack of those images, mm -hmm. I think, in a really wonderful way. Um, but I want to, before, before I ask you to do that, just sort of confront the other elephant in the room, which is the fact that we are two Pākehā sitting here on stage mm -hmm. talking about one of our greatest Māori artists. Um, and you state in your foreword uh, that you were worried that you might not be the person to write this biography, partly because of that, yes. um, uh, being Pākehā and an outsider to the art world, but that Ralph gave, gave you his yes. blessing and, um, yes. uh, and you went ahead. But I do, I wonder, did you nevertheless feel any anxiety about that as you went forward? No, I didn't have it? any anxiety about that because Ralph didn't. Yeah, and uh, it was never, never really an issue or problem. He said the when I did raise these possibilities, that a lot of people who know a lot more about art than I do, and, and of course the whole Maori context and so on. But he said the important thing to him is he didn't want it by, uh, done by someone with an agenda. Mm. And it was as simple what as that. What do you think he meant by that? What, what agenda do you think he had in mind? I don't think he wanted to be used as a point of argument for someone's point of view. Mm. Mm. I'm, uh, in fact, I'm certain that's what, um, what he meant. So our attitude, and I mean, we talked obviously about the, the Maori element and the European element, but it was all just quite natural, I suppose, partly because we, we'd known each other for so long. And so the way I like to think of it, although it's, uh, many people would put it differently, is that it's not a book by Māori about Pākehā. It was a book that was written by two New Zealanders. Mm. Mm. I mean, one of the things that you make abundantly clear throughout the book is that Ralph himself was someone who, uh, who pushed back against... Uh, I think something that has become really dominant in our interpretation of, of creative works these days, which is a type of identity politics where you, who you are defines what you make and how that work should be interpreted. And, and I think I wrote down uh, what you... Um, uh, he said, you say being Māori was part of the certainty of what he was, not the label applied to what he made. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, you make that very clear as a thread throughout the book. I, I wondered, sort of thinking more broadly, do you think it is uh, possible for future scholarship on Hōtere's works or life to be able to avoid seeing him as, as a Māori artist or even a New Zealand artist. I mean, you say it was a book written by a New Zealander mm. about a New Zealand artist, but he even pushed back yeah. against the idea of being a New Zealand artist occasionally yeah. as well. well. When I was writing it, 
and I still think this to some extent, I'm simply not too worried about what the future might do yeah. with things. Uh, you, you have to be reasonable <laughs> about how, how long you're going to be around. And so if there's an argument in 20 years' time and I'm not part of it, why should I be interested in it? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and also with Ralph himself, it was interesting. Some people at a time, I think, misunderstood Ralph, when he said he didn't want to um, or felt uneasy if the word Maori was used about him. And this was because I've never known a person so certain in himself and what he was. So it had nothing to do with that, but he had that, the attitude that as far as art goes, if you start using an adjective about someone, you're immediately starting to, in a sense, diminish them. Or if not diminish, you're starting to put them between rails that you are laying down and that the artist himself isn't bothered by. And it's impossible, I think, to separate uh, in Hotri, um, sort of the Maori from the European elements as art. Mm. And there's no great mystique about that. There's no problem about that. I don't think it's offensive to anybody. And you can say, if you like, yes, he's a... Uh, a, a Maori artist vastly influenced by contemporary um, European art and so on. You can play, you know, you can move the adjectives around uh, as you want to. But the thing is that it wasn't a problem for Ralph and seeing that was the case, it wasn't a problem for me as a writer, mm. uh, taking my lead from him. Yeah. So in terms of um, that that interpretation of artworks, which is something that he felt quite sort of wary of at times um, throughout his career. I, I wonder whether you would read, read this passage where I think you walk very carefully the line between interpretation and verbal representation mm. of what he is doing in, in some early paintings. Would you be happy to read the, the passage yes, that we yes. spoke about now? It's on page 110. That, that was 110. Yeah, the pet, after, after that, his... <clears throat> yes, I was very aware because of uh, Ralph's own attitudes that when you're in the business of writing a book, about, the almost absurd position you might think of writing a book about uh, an artist without, without images, that he was very aware that what irritated him about a lot of art criticism wasn't whether it was favourable or not. But he said when someone starts writing about a picture, they start writing about themselves. And that was a very shrewd view. And um, his opinion of critics didn't change, it seemed to me, from <laughs> saying that when he was quite early. So when I was trying to suggest something about a painting that, of course, people couldn't see, mm. where you're thrown back on words. I was trying to be careful not to interpret <clears throat> or do anything that wasn't taking its lead from what Ralph was doing in the piece I was talking about or that he had said um, something about uh, elsewhere. And also, in fact, into the end of this book, with the short bibliography, there are a list of websites, uh, the uh, Te Papa, Auckland Art Gallery, and so on. So any picture that is actually any um, image that's talked about in the book 
can actually be seen if anyone wants to. I think, I think that's really crucial. I mean, I was conscious reading yes, it that yeah. I had a sort of a mental image of many of these works having seen them previously, but it, it would be quite confronting for someone who was not familiar with his works yes, at all yes. to, to pick up a book like this. But show us what you do instead. Yes. So this is, I'm, I'm talking here about when Ralph first went to Europe and one of the first things he wanted to do, this is when he went to the continent, um, was to visit his brother's grave. Jack had been killed in 1943 with the, when he was with the Maori Battalion at the Battle of the Sangro, where there was you know, a massive loss of, of uh, New Zealand soldiers. And it meant a great deal to Ralph and to his parents and family back home that one of them at last had stood at the grave with Jack drawing him back into the circle of his whanau. The emotional force of visiting the cemetery near Otona, the stirring memories of his brother and the more general grief for young New Zealanders who had died in the same campaign, were directed to his first enduringly important series that set a pattern for most of Hauteri's painting life. A deeply personal event, a compelling idea, a dominating public or political occasion, a resonant arrangement of words, would propel him to work on a series of paintings that expanded and diversified until their impelling drive was resolved. Over the next 18 months, many of the Sangro paintings would take shape on the dismantled sides of small packing cases that had once contained television parts with their central plywood panel surrounded by four raised strips of wood. The paintings mostly used the form of this thick, dark framework with the painting center in vigorous, bright colors, often insistent reds carrying the vividness of youth into notions of blood and confusion and loss. Their effect is insistently elegiac. Basically, as Ralph said, they are about the stupidity of war. The occasional celebratory ring of intense color is an echo of what has been lost in the darkness that surrounds it. At times, the running of paint and blood are deliberately paralleled. The repetitive ages of the young soldiers had struck home as Ralph walked the rows of graves. The numbers were now repeated in his paintings, at times like the simple scrawled figures on a school blackboard, at others blocked in with the kind of stenciling familiar to young men who had worked on farms or in freezing works or wool stores. And now the men themselves, like the beasts and carcasses that had been their trade, were themselves numbered as much as named. We were a country that exported youth. Thank you. Um, <coughs> yeah, I, I asked you to read that because it was one of my favourite pastors in the book and it, it really felt to me, uh, this, you know, you, as you say, were so sensitive towards uh, Ralph's own suspicion of, of art writing, but to me that is some of the best art writing <laughs> that, um, uh, that could have been applied to his, his work and I, I wondered... I mean, I don't want to come back to the 
the lack of images, but were you writing passages like that when you were drafting the book, thinking that there would be an image of that painting next to the paragraph in the, in the text, or was there a point where you knew that you were going to have to heighten the way that you were describing the paintings because there was going to be a lack of them? Yes, I, I, I can't quite answer that because I don't remember if I wrote that page, for example, when I thought an image was coming, or I think I may have expanded it. Mm. If there had been an image, there would have been no need to describe uh, the black borders and so on, because you simply could have looked at it. Um, yeah, I think that would have created quite a different book, though. It, it, it would have been a different, a different book, book in some yes, ways, yes, because obviously one yes, of the things about Hotere's yeah. work, work is that um, that yeah. combination of, of yes. text and, and yeah. visuals, and yes. uh, you know. I mean, words are always a very, very poor substitute for an image of any kind if you're trying to write about it. But the thing is, it's the only thing we've got if we haven't got the image. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, just try and evoke it. In, in some way, but knowing its limitations at the same time. Yeah, and that idea of um, uh, that, that quotation, as soon as someone starts talking about a painting, they're talking about themselves. I mean, here you are talking about a painting. Yeah. Are you talking about yourself? Oh, I hope not. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so this is one yeah. of the other things, I suppose, yeah. that I was struck by is that yeah. you are not, yeah. not obviously in this book no, yourself, no. whereas and, presumably there are yes. stories that you could have told in the same way that you tell stories it, of Ralph's interactions with other kind of literary luminaries like yes. yourself. Over well, I hope that, and why it isn't art criticism I'm writing there, as I suppose a fairly, or attempting to do something that is a, uh, a description, um, because an art critic is always making a judgment. Mm. and will always say, I think this, or is likely to say this work is better than that work. Whereas I'm not evaluating Ralph. I'm saying at this stage, I, I do get quite excited when we get to some of the really great works later on, but that's not my intruding with my personal opinion, but just saying how at that time he moved into a different mode almost of, of painting. Mm. And um, then I sometimes quote critics to bear out my own opinion, but I deliberately do that so it's someone else's words and not mine. Mm. You know, this is a book about Ralph. It's not about my, uh, my, my personal feelings particularly. And that's why in the, uh, in the general description of the book, I, and there are a few episodes where I could have sort of written about both of us, but it seemed not appropriate. Would you speak about one or two of those episodes now? Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the anecdotes about um, yeah. uh, his, his relationships with, with other writers who we are familiar oh, with. Yes, you know, yes. I mean, you must have stories yourself. Oh, yes. I mean, what would you have written if you were, oh, if you well, were not Vincent O'Sullivan writing yeah. about? Oh, well, some <laughs> of these anecdotes are, in fact, comes from our personal contact. I just don't say that they're about me. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can say he was with a friend at the time when such and such happened. Ah, a friend. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, well, I mean, so one of the other, um, uh, one of the main, um, uh, what is the word that I'm looking for, strings in your bow, is that you are also a poet. And I just, um, uh, I wondered if coming from that standpoint, uh, what you feel, 
I'm, I'm trying not to ask you an art critical question, but as a poet, what do you feel about Ralph's use of poetry in, in his work and the way that that evolved over the course of um, his career? I don't think, as far as I know, he yes, ever yes. used any of your poetry no, in his work. Well, there again, you see, I think, it, it wasn't for me to say, I think mm. this is a good poem or not a good poem that he's using, but the fact that he did use a poem, this is his poem, um, he, he represented. When he first started using letters, it was shortly after, uh, using script, I mean, it was shortly after McCann had started, I think this is Ecclesiastes paintings. Um, and it was very interesting, they were very good friends, um, Ralph and McCann, but in a sense they watched each other like hawks. <laughs> and they knew they were doing something very different, but they were alert to what the other one was doing. Mm. And I suspect, and it wasn't one thing I should have said early on, it was very hard to get things out of Ralph if he didn't want to tell you. So, uh, oh, that comes through in the book. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think I mentioned that once or twice that he started doing this because of, of McCann and already started using words. And he had a, a, a sort of a, a disarming gift of even if he knew you well and we were sitting like this and I'd ask him that. And he'd sit there for 10 minutes and you think, is he going to say something profound? And you realise he was prepared to sit all night and just not answer unless you asked him something that he, he thought, was, thought was my business. <laughs> and um, for example, the, the, the kind of thing that was, it made it both a pleasure working with Ralph, but also one of the challenges was the silence about him. And I, there was one motif he uses uh, a lot in his work, and it was a, an image he'd taken from a gypsy church in the Camargue, and it was a heart with uh, an anchor above it, uh, with a cross above it, which could be turned into an anchor. And it was clearly fitted in with some of his sort of interest in religious motifs later on. But I, it was such a non-New Zealand thing to be. Most of his images sort of relate sooner or later to New Zealand. And I kept asking him, and, and it was, I think, the, the one time he became a bit irritated with me. Uh, about why he kept using this, and he said, because it bloody looks good. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's as far as you'd get. You'd never get the notion of, oh, this, this has this significant spiritual uh, meaning for me. He hated that sort of talk. And um, that's why he was so different to some painters, and you could ask a question and go away and come back on Friday, and they'd still be answering it, you know. So <laughs> And so, he, he had that same because it bloody looks good attitude even to the text, right? Which is quite, yes. uh, to me, as a, as a literary critic, it's quite mm. interesting because you are constantly wanting to interpret text. That's right. But yes. sometimes it was, in fact, the visual yes. aspects of yes. the words that he was most yes. interested in. Later on in his life, for example, when he was working with, collaborating with uh, Bill Colbert, um, a newspaper was coming to, uh, to interview them, and Bill Colbert was quite happy to talk to them. And uh, he told me himself about this, and, and uh, he said, oh, what, shall we say this and that? And Ralph just kept saying, tell them nothing, tell them nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, 
I, I just want to. I, I do want to push you a little bit, though, on um, on his use of poetry in particular. I oh, mean, yes, I suppose. Yes. Um, uh, do you? Is there anything that you find unsettling about his kind of decontextualizing of lines of poetry? I mean, what had he done that with your poems? What would you, as a poet, have felt about it? Is it is it elevating the words, or is it diminishing well, them, only, taking uh, them from outside their context that they are? have been kind of carefully designed to fit with Well, he used quite a lot of, of Bill Manhire's poems mm. and lines, and Bill wrote an interesting um, essay, uh, or at least a piece about this once, when he said it was not a collaboration in the normal sense, they didn't, uh, the usual sense, they didn't talk beforehand about what lines they were going to be, and there was an agreement, and Bill said, oh, you can use what you like, and sometimes Ruff would turn something up and Bill didn't know that he was going to use it. And a, bit of, a very important aspect to think of here is what Ralph was doing with words was very, very different from what McCann mm. wanted to do. McCann is always, I think most of us agree with this, and it's part of his charm, or charm, that's not the word for McCann, part of his, <laughs> part of his power is that he used language, the language of a prophet. This is good for you to know. That this is what life's like if you think enough about it. This is the sort of country you live in. And he's, just, he's giving you a little, sometimes almost a ticking off, isn't it? And then <clears throat> when he uses the biblical sections, it's because the words are very important words to him. And he wants them to be important words to you. I, I think. With Hotri uses words in a lighter way mm. than that. He finds them appealing. Sometimes they're lines that simply exist as lines of poetry, or later on when he starts using Maori texts and, and uh, Fokatauki and so on. Um, the meaning of the words is very important to him, but this is one of the few things I think you can say he definitely spoke about, and especially to Marion Maguire, who um, was his printmaker. He would regard the language he used, or the sentences he used, as aesthetic components of his work, irrespective of what they said. And that's important that sometimes we can overdo it if you talk about poetry as um, a painter of protest. Of course, he was a person of strong political opinions in things like the Aramwana, environmental issues. And he was definitely meaning these as you might carry a placard in a march. This is something to be sure of. But he would also, as Marion said, sometimes when he was confronted with a canvas or a stone to work on, and he realized words, he'd say, what words might suit here? And he didn't mean for their actual semantic meaning, he meant mm -hmm. that will look right within the context of the rest of the composition. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very interesting aspect of poetry and one that's it's easy to forget about, that he was a man of, yes, passionate views, but he was probably the most most purely aesthetic people I knew, the effect of a line or the change of a gradation 
in one of the black paintings, you know, and you can scarcely perceive the difference. And he would, but this was an aesthetic choice because it looks good to get back to his image before. And he felt he didn't have to explain it beyond that. Mm, mm. Um, <coughs> you, me you mentioned Marianne Maguire, um, uh, with whom he collaborated on printmaking. And one of the things that uh, really comes through as you read the book, um, particularly if you sort of read it in a sitting as I did, is the um, just the, the range of media that he worked in yeah. over the years and the uh, the way he would engage with other people in the art world, um, you know, doing pottery with Barry Brickle and printmaking mm. with Marion, and um, uh, really working in quite a magpie way, I think, in yes. terms of um, the various artistic media that he engaged in. And, um, mm. uh, and I wondered if we were to engage in a spot of biographical criticism. Um, do you think there was anything about his life that predisposed him to that holistic approach to, to media and materials? Well, he was, he said, and I'm not, I know that he did say this is not one of the things I <laughs> sort of guessed he might have thought about, but he would say, what have we here? What have we got to work with? Mm. And he was a master of, one of the remarkable things in that exhibition um, that unfortunately isn't coming to the North Island, it's on in, in Christchurch at the moment, is just how incredibly meticulous he was. You look at something like the great uh, airport mural with the Kuaka poem in the middle and then the, the wings of the painting going out for 18 metres. It's a huge painting. And part of that hugeness is the hundreds of meticulous lines and not just lines drawn together, but sometimes the most delicate mottling between the lines that you'd almost miss and so on, the actual distance between them sort of minutely variable. And, you know, this intensely aesthetic attention. But he's the same person when it will come to uh, sort of the protest against Aramana. We'll take old chunks of iron and corrugated iron and um, sort of sheets of polished metal that a friend happened to drop from a truck from Fisher and Paykel. And, um, and so it just came his way. He had, a, he had a great gift for things coming his way like that. And <laughs> so it doesn't matter what the material was in a sense, if he was working with it, he would evolve a technique that was appropriate to that particular material. And as I say, if you look at some of the early uh, black paintings and you put beside that, that huge Aramoana, the victory one after Aramoana was, was dropped, uh, uh, the, the smelter scheme. And it's incredibly clever because if you stand back from it, and it's very big, as you know, half the size of the stage, it's got the configurations and the, and the, uh, of a Greek temple, mm. but the pillars are these great thick things of corrugated iron and starting in black and gradually moving towards white and the celebration of moving from the darkness to the light of the victory over Amwana. And, and then it has sort of thick chunks of timber 
as well. So out of the most unlikely stuff, you're looking at what is an effective and immediate protest of a political kind with this constant, with this referencing to a, a tradition that goes back to the Greeks. And it's impossible to look at that, I think, and not think of the Greek temple. Mm -hmm. And again, why this is so, who knows? But it's certainly incredibly effective. And it just shows the, I think, the range of, uh, of Ralph's mind, the way he'd bring things together. Sometimes, I was thinking the other day, um, with this coming up, walking down here, seeing one of these huge job sites. And it was one of those huge things that was, you know, just scooping stuff up and lifting it. And I thought, if ever you wanted an image of Hawtrey, that's it. He was a person who just scoop up any sort of thing, whether it was material or images or uh, ideas, and from what was to hand, he would create something that he said would then look as if it was necessary. It's an amazing resourcefulness, but also a real confidence in being able to work like that. Oh, uh, yes. Going to some of the other events over yes. the course of the weekend, yes. people have talked really yes. frankly about their, their self-doubt often that they grapple with as writers, but yes. you don't really get a sense of any doubt in what he's doing no, at he's, any point he's along very, the way. I mean, I'm sure that, um, well, he did some works he liked, some works uh, he, he, he would discard, but he was very cautious, not cautious. He was extremely private in letting on what the passion was that was going into the work. For example, his um, daughter Andrea's story of hers in here, a lovely story about when he was later working on some of the, uh, you know, purely Maori images, uh, Maori words, I mean. Um, he'd be, you know, he painted late at night. He preferred doing that. And he would be crying as he painted, but wouldn't say why. So you assume that the particular grief or sadness or whatever it was, don't ask about that, look at what comes of it. Mm -hmm. You know, if you say, oh, well, what are you thinking to make you sad? The obvious answer, isn't it, is this is what it is, and there's the image. Mm -hmm. And so that, in fact, forestalls comparatively trivial questions of, I wonder what lies behind this painting. It's interesting because it's, it's what drives many of the yes. events at festivals like this, right? We're often up here asking you, yes. well, what drove you to yes. make this, yes. this artwork, whether it's a book or a, or a painting or, or whatever, but you're right that he, he just pushed back and pushed back against that as a mode of interpretation. Um, you, mention, you mention Andrea, who was obviously one of the, the women in his line, yes. and uh, one of the women in, in the book, and um, uh, I read your interview that you did with Bruce Munro for the ODT shortly after the book's release, in which you said to him, I've often thought that to talk about Ralph without women was like talking about a tortoise without a shell. He depended on them in various ways, not just emotionally. They were constantly important to him and gave him a great deal that made his life as an artist possible. And so for me, as a, as a female reader reading this book, I, I actually found it slightly problematic the way that women kind of fade in and out of the narrative a little bit. But I wondered whether, in fact, you had done that to emulate how they were in Ralph's own oh, life, fading in and out of various I stages of it. I think that simply reflected the way they faded in and out biographically. 
Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, it, that was a, not a difficult, but a challenging part of the book to write about because you don't want to. It's very easy if you're talking about anything to do with gender issues and so on um, to say the same thing. And I didn't want people throwing stones on my roof and and that kind of thing. But one thing that was very obvious from lots of letters I read and so on, and that dreadful word macho, which he would never apply to himself, but other people applied to him, in that people found him, women found him very attractive to the point of view that, again, as Andrew's daughter told me, he would hide and say, tell them to go away, and so on, when they came round. And, um, so, so this, this is a difficult area to talk about, mm. and it's certainly, it would seem to me an impertinent, impertinence on my part if I tried to make anything evaluative about that at all. all Perhaps can, 20 years down the line, somebody will write about the women in Ralph Hortere's life, and you won't have to bother no, with it. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm certain they will, yes, yes. Um, uh, it's one of the things I hope I'm not here to see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can you tell us about the book's title, Vincent, and where it came from, The Dark is Light Enough? Oh, the title, yes, it's from um, poems of St. John of the Cross, a Spanish poet of the 15th century, and this might seem, well, this is a bit out of the way, isn't it, sort of, but it seemed particularly appropriate because with Ralph there is that feeling often that he's at ease with darkness, what he wants to do and what he wants to think is sort of encapsulated in darkness. And it also, at later in his life, he became very interested and greatly admired Spanish Baroque art. That very dark art with, but you know, you go into a Spanish church and there's a sense both of darkness but glinting metal everywhere in this kind of, uh, this kind of thing. And his last great series of paintings, as far as I'm concerned, was the, um, the gold on black ones, of the pure black painted on glass and with gold powder that he got from uh, genuine gold from putting sovereigns on the railway track behind his house. And then sort of, so when they were flattened, they were easier to sort of melt down and handle for, um, and, these marvellous sort of, you can say they're quasi-religious if you want to, you don't have to say that if you don't, but this sense of the gloriousness and brightness that can come from darkness or it's inseparable. You don't feel there that it's a tussle between light and dark in those eight paintings, I don't think, do you? You feel that one actually demands the other and the importance of both has that dependence. Mm, mm, yes, mm. and so that's why I thought, um, frankly, that as someone said to me about this title once, oh, it's a bit wanky, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and um, it would have been, I think, if I, it wasn't for that Spanish interest and the fact that it does seem to me a phrase that just so, so appropriate to Ralph. What I haven't yet um, mentioned is, of course, his the importance of darkness to him and the enormous gradations, uh, or at least range of gradations of, of, of the word to Paul in, in Māori, 
and which is sort of far more extensive than anything in English, you know, the darkness. We think of the darkness after death. We seldom think of the darkness before birth, but that's an important concept. There's the dark that nothing can be released from and the dark that can move towards light and so on. And then, of course, his tribal connection, this is very important, I think, Te Apuri, and the very word means the stream of darkness, because the, uh, an ancestor, an important ancestor, um, there are several stories about him of escaping from the Ngāpui, who were always the big tribe and they were the little one, um, would burn his own, there's a story when he burnt his own pa. And of course the opposition think this is a great victory, but of course it was in the smoke of that everyone escaped. So no one was destroyed and they, and that was the stream of darkness that the name comes from. So this notion is there all the time, I think, with Ralph, and only once because he was, you know, so private about these things. There's just once when he was writing letters to, um, to a, a, a woman about some of the black paintings, and he said that they, he didn't say reflected, I forget the exact word, but they expressed the darkness and the grief that was in himself. Mm. And that's a very difficult area to talk about, but it's one that is certainly there in Hotri, both the a personal grief at certain times, but also the, the greater grief of um, what had happened to uh, the northern tribes or, or, or the tribes anywhere. Yeah. Mm, mm. Oh, just one thing there. When he um, was making a, 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 he was employed by Meritometer to be the art, the artistic advisor on a movie, which he hated because he thought it was all, you know, pretty trivial, and he was sort of to, uh, to <laughs> design the the uh, the foray in the background or something like this. Um, but what interested him working up there in the in the east coast, whether you know the really great meeting houses. And when he came back, the photographs that interested him were the photographs he'd taken of, of deserted sites, of foray that had just collapsed with time, mm -hmm. of the paths that had been moved from. And these were the things that I think you can reasonably say he would grieve over as images of not an irrecoverable past, because he gets to the point of, you know, that really great work of art, Black Phoenix, and everything that was lost, you might think, by destruction, fire, and so on, it's raised on his own terms. And, well, to me, that seems to me almost the, uh, the pinnacle of, of, of Ralph's art, that people, but it's impossible not to look at that and think that it's, as important a statement as we've probably got about New Zealand history. Mm -hmm. And as we've started talking about grief, I want to, and I'm just looking at the time, I want to move to questions shortly, yes. but um, uh, there is a real sadness with which the book finishes, and I wondered whether we could talk about that um, a little bit, and maybe you might read a little bit from the final 
section of the book which describes his tangi. Mm -hmm. um, and um, because the, there's a sort of afterword um, entitled Te Hokinga Mai, which follows this paragraph that is really a little bit like an encyclopedia entry, I think sort of sums yes. up what happened in the years after you were no longer engaging with him in order yes. to be able to write the biography. But then yes. uh, you, um, you were you yourself at the tangi? Is, is your description drawn from your own memory of oh, it? Oh, yes, 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 yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Um, do you have a short passage you'd like to yes, I'll read, read that. from that? Yes, sure. Perhaps before that, though, mm. if I might, because uh, we haven't gone into it, but it's well known about Hotri that his uh, Catholicism yeah. meant so much to his art. But lest we think that um, it, it meant an enormous to amount to him as a as the family member and also as an artist, but he could also be splendidly sort of Joycean, almost in his handling of Catholic themes. And I'll just re read this bit, which I always like when he was asked to, by the Governor Brewster Gallery, to make a proposal for the Stations of the Cross. Well, he'd done a thing referencing the Stations dozens of times, but this was the one that he offered, which strangely enough wasn't taken up. It was called the, the Taranaki Gate Stations. And it was, this is his letter, um, it was to involve 14 farm gates set up in a crucifix formation inside the gallery. 14 sheep, numbered one to 14, spray painted on them, were to be contained within a pen. Sheep must be, and his instructions read, sheep must be fed and watered 40 days, after which truck sheep off to the works on Good Friday or at the end of the exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> And, and for those of you who haven't read the book, I mean, this is one of yes. the joys of it, is getting this real sense of humour yes. throughout as well. It, it, just quickly uh, uh, about the end, that, um, as I say, Ralph happily enough talked about what must happen when he died. It would be a straightforward matter of returning him to Mitty Mitty to lie among his whanau in the landscape that he defined as home. He had always liked to travel flash, a red MG, a Renault, a white Jaguar. Now, a day after his requiem in the cathedral in Dunedin, his returning for good was appropriately stylish, a distant reminder of the young pilot who 60 years before flew a tiger moth along the beaches, swooping over country schools. This time he was aboard the RNZAF NH-90 helicopter, circling the tiny settlement skimming at his sister's request the length of the beach across the homes of his boyhood, where the homes had stood, flickering behind the bush-clad slopes of Tarakeha before touching down in front of the Mati'iti Marae. The landing site was a circle outlined in black with a big black H as if for the artists coming home, Te Hokingamai. There were far too many warners for the hundred-year-old church of Hatohemi, so the mass was held in Tumwana, where Ralph had lain for three nights. The women closest to him attended him for the last time. A black cloth was draped across him, 
the great flax basket of leaves in front of the coffin was moved away as a few written pages were slipped in beside him and gifts for the journey. Then the lid of the coffin was placed across him, a plain wooden plank with the one word hautry, spelled out in the black stenciling lettering he had used in scores of work, the lettering taken from wool sheds and sacking and tin and bales from the raw world of every day that became a signature of his art. One fine korowai after another was laid across the coffin, cloaks honouring Arangatera. The gospel reading appropriately told of John the Baptist, the honey papita of Ralph's name. And the homily drew on the fact that both men were stirrers. There were Latin hymns during the service as Ralph wanted there to be. And as he was carried from a foreign nui, a guard of honour from Hato Petra, his old, his old school, broke into the Kamati Haka, and men and women and children joined in. While from the fresh grave in the sand hills of the Urupa, the view would stay the same. You might turn to look northwards along the surf misted beach, the path the legendary Coupe took to Cape Ranga, the flight path of the Kuaka the Godwits, and would, who would soon follow in their own journeying north. The beach where, 70 years before, a boy rode his horse over and over, hoping to make straighter and straighter lines, and knowing, and knowing how a line so naturally arcs back to where the end was the beginning. Right. <clears throat> <clears throat> Thank you. No, thank thank you. you, Vincent, because I think, um, you know, you say this maybe wasn't the book that you yes. had expected to write, but I think mm. that mm. particular section and the elegy it provides makes it mm. makes up for anything that you <laughs> might, might not have had included in it. I want to, um, I can see that we've got a few minutes left. If you'd be able to bring the house lights up, we can see if there are any questions in the audience. Um, uh, I believe there are standing mics. Can we have the house lights up, please? Um, uh, there are a couple, if I can see them, right at the front of the stage on either side. If you'd like to ask a question, do please come up and stand in front of a mic. I don't think we've got all that many people up in the gallery, but there are a couple of mics up there as well. Um, do please feel free to come forward if you'd like to ask Vincent a question. I've got one while people gather their thoughts, which is, do you have a favourite Hauteri work? Oh, it has to be Black Phoenix, I think. It has to be Black Phoenix. Yes, and then the, um, the airport mural. But if one that it was possible to actually steal and small enough to take home. <laughs> it would be one of the gold and black ones at the yeah. end. Yeah. Were you the beneficiary of, of mm. were you the beneficiary at some point of Ralph's famous generosity where he no, was I voice painting? Too late. So he never yes. gave you a painting. But one, thing, one thing because he never gave me anything, I'm not in danger of being involved in legal disputes. <laughs> <laughs> Very fortunate. Are there any questions in the audience at all? Um, 
Uh, I wonder if you... Um, is that a man coming down? Oh, is there a man? A man. Oh, a lady and then a... No. Uh, yes, perfect. Can you hear me, ben? Yes, kia ora. Uh, Roger Hall, one of your students at Victoria University. <laughs> um, I'm, your theatre work is probably least known of all your work, really. And yet I consider Shuriken perhaps the best written play ever in New Zealand. Um, well, thank you, Roger. Very good. But I, alas, I, alas, I've never seen it. I doubt if many people here. I know partly because it's a huge cast and so on and so on. But um, can you tell us just a, a little bit about your writing for theatre? Is the time? There's, yes. a, there's a little time. We're slightly off topic, so but please do respond. Yes. <laughs> respond briefly, if you will. Very briefly, Roger, is that my interest in theatre didn't seem to coincide with anyone else's interest in theatre. <laughs> <laughs> And so, curiously enough, it was only last week I came back and wrote the first and had the first play I'd done for about twenty odd years put on in the Dunedin Festival. But uh, it's it's something that I regret that I hadn't done done a lot more of. You well, know. I think we should all share that regret, and yeah. I hope Shuriken somehow can be revived. It's it's the right time for it. Anyhow, thank you very much for your career. Well, thank you. Thank you. I think there's a question down the front. Sorry, so maybe pull the microphone down towards you if needs be. In the use of words in paintings, do you think they owed anything to uh, William Blake um, using, say, in the illustration of the Book of Job, do you think that his use of words and that had any influence on either of them? Well, it certainly wouldn't have with, with uh, Ralph, but I don't know about, sorry about McCann. Thank you. Yeah, I simply don't know enough. Yes, but there's uh, uh, just on the Khan and poetry. There's one image I wish there was a photo of just about more than anything else that I've heard has happened. Is that they used to go to the Kiwi pub together, and this was in the 60s. And this is when uh, Ralph had uh, a red sports car, and they would go and. McCann and Ralph always sort of just managing to drive and uh, McCann just managing to get to the car with him. But he would drive in this, it's not a regular thing, but I know it happened a few times. He would drive McCann home, Ralph driving the sports car and McCann standing behind him with his hands on Ralph's shoulders so he could gather in the view as they went home. And that's a lovely image. That's a wonderful image. <laughs> yes. um, a question up the back there. Kia ora. Yeah, I have a question. Um, I'm interested in the process of you writing this book. I'm over here. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and that you said that you went in 2001 to speak with Ralph possibly for the first time about this book. Did you return again to talk and, and therefore um, is it because of the negotiations over the paintings that the book is published so many years later? Than yeah, that well, it was in two, um, 2001, he, uh, I got a message that if I was down that way to go, could I see him? And then we talked and Ralph suggested that I do, do the book. And then, um, but there were all sorts of difficult, and remember Ralph's stroke, it was, it was a very severe stroke. And no one can have that sort of colossal damage done to their, their body and mind without it, um, you know, affecting them very, very seriously. So it became 
it wasn't an easy time to talk to him, but it was still possible. But as things went on, um, not just myself, but many people, uh, friends and so on, didn't have access to Ralph. We weren't able to see him. And there was something perhaps slightly paranoid about this. For example, he was put in hospital not under his own name, but as Chris Daniels. And as his sister said, if it had been Jack, it would have made sense. <laughs> <laughs> but it just became, without sort of implicating anyone really, the situation was a difficult one and the whole business of caring for a very ill man and so on. But I didn't really see him in his last three years because I didn't sort of really have access to him. Thank you, Vincent, and thank you for your questions. Um, I am looking at these flashing numbers in front of me, and they tell me that I am to uh, inform you all that Vincent will in a moment be at the signing table if you would like to go and speak with him further, and uh, please do buy a copy of the book and, and get him to sign it for you. He will also be back tomorrow uh, in a, um, a free event uh, to close the festival, which is at five o'clock, so same place, same time. Um, here, uh, he will be joined by a number of other literary icons. Um, yes. <laughs> Patricia Grace, Witte, Ahmira, Fiona Kidman, CK Stead, Brian Turner, and Albert Went. So do please come in. It's, it's a badly named uh, are you gonna Are you going to tell them what you yes. think it should be called? <laughs> it should be called the Coffin Dodgers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.